remember very clearly, our family got our first CD player probably around 1990, 1991. And the reason I remember it is I remember the first album I bought. And that was 1991. Can anyone guess? It's a bit of a wild guess. It's a bit of a wild guess. Backstreet Boys were not around in 1991. Come on. No, it wasn't Boys to Men. It was actually, come on, where are you? Mariah Carey. Come on, where are you? Come on, Mariah. Seriously. Anyway, there you go. That was the first album I bought. She used to be good. And then her dresses got shorter and then she married a millionaire. And Anyway, um, she got me feeling emotions. Uh, so that was 1991. Now the reason I mention it is if you were born after that, you have no idea how big the CD revolution was. It really was huge, okay? If you grew up in the 80s like I did. It was huge because before then, all you had for your music were these things. Cassette tapes. Some of you are like, what are they? Is that type of robot? No, it's a cassette tape. Um, CD re- uh, technology revolutionized music. I mean, the quality of the audio was digital, so it was much better. Um, and cassette tape days, you had to listen from the beginning to the end, you couldn't skip tracks very easily. Or if you did, it was like, right? It was, the CDs, you could like, I, you know, of course, Mariah Carey, I listened to every track, but that's it. And then um, when, they, when they made its computers, wow, like before CD-ROMs were on computers, floppy disks, 1.44 megabytes was as big as you could fit on one floppy disk. And then suddenly it jumped to 700 megabytes, which, you know, is huge. Um, and then obviously CDs, Followed, uh, followed by DVDs, Blu-ray technology, all built on the same technology. CDs changed everything. Well, as I said, I didn't get my first CD player until around 1990-1991, probably for most families around the late 80s or the early 90s as well. But you need to know that the technology for CDs was launched about a decade before I got my first CD player. There was actually a joint uh, cooperation by Philips and Sony, the two tech companies that developed the CD. It was 1979 when Philips trademarked the name Compact Disc. And then the first commercially available music album was actually produced in 1982. I'd be really impressed if anyone could remember what that album was. No one, no one? It was a Billy Joel album called 52nd Street. Who's Billy Joel? Don't worry about it. Um, 1982. 1983, CD players were commercially available. Okay, you got that? I got my CD player in 1991, 1990. So this was years later. But even though CD technology had been around, it did take about 10 years to overtake the sales of those robot-looking cassette tapes. Okay, it was a revolution, but it took about a decade. However, once it did take hold, things changed pretty quickly. So in the 1990s, cassette tapes... Uh, the sales began to drop until it was phased out in the 90s and CDs became the standard and the rest is history. Now, why do I mention all of that? Not just to point out those of us who are older and wiser and better looking. It's because the history of the Christian church in the book of Acts is a little bit like this. What do I mean? Well, the book of Acts, it begins with the risen Jesus and he's, telling his com- uh, he's commissioning his disciples to make disciples from all nations. You got that? All nations. And it was a revolution. It was a revolution because up to that point, right, Christianity was amongst Jewish converts. 
They were Jews first and then they became disciples. But then Jesus commissioned his disciples to go to Jerusalem, in all Judea, and then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8, probably the key verse in the book. So you see, the mission was always to be multi-ethnic. It was to be Jews and non-Jews. Jews and, the word for non-Jews in the Bible is Gentile. So this was a revolution. It was now for everyone. Now that's how Acts begins. Jesus says, go out to everyone. Tell everyone. Tell the nations. But here's the thing. It took a long time before the actual mission of the apostles and the church in Jerusalem reflected this revolution. How long did it take? You guessed it, about 10 years. 10 years. A bit like the CD revolution. So Peter preaches his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. It was only a couple of years later, right, that Philip went to Samaria outside of Judea to preach. But then it took a few years after that for Peter to see the conversion of the first true Gentile, really, the first uh, true Gentile convert, his name was Cornelius. He was a centurion. And by the time Cornelius is converted, about 10 years had passed since Jesus went to heaven. Right? The church in Jerusalem was still pretty much Jewish. The first Christians were still pretty much Jewish. Right? That took 10 years until the events of Acts 11 that we just read about. And it's here that everything begins to change. Because that church of Antioch is and becomes the first predominantly non-Jewish or Gentile church. Right? As I said, it takes a decade to happen, but when it finally happens, the church unleashes a tidal wave of mission into all the world. Now, if you really want to know how important this church in Antioch is, not just for the story in Acts, but for our story as well, you just have to look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. It tells us that it was at this time, at this church, that the disciples began to be called Christians. This is an important little detail. See, up till then, Jesus' followers were just seen as a sect of Judaism because they were all Jews. But now, you had Christians who were not Jewish. Now, it was part of a new movement and so the new movement needed a new name. And so they were called Christians or followers of the Christ. Now you get that, right? Because now in the world today, a third of the world's population, which is predominantly non-Jewish, are called Christians. That name started there, in that church, in Antioch, and it persists today. So that we're called Christians. So, Vision Sunday, 2016. I think it's pretty appropriate, isn't it? particularly at this congregation because you're Acts 11, to use these verses about this church to guide us at Southwest CCC, our church. Because what we want to do is we want the mission and the vision of our church to take cues from that church, Antioch. And it's not just because they, like us, are a Gentile or a non-Jewish church. It's because they, as we'll see in a moment, did church in a city that is a lot like Sydney. Multicultural, multi-ethnic, predominantly non-Christian with lots of competing religions and ways of life. Let me pray and let's get into the passage. Father God, open our eyes to see how the church then in Antioch can impact us here in this little corner of Sydney so that we might, through the same Holy Spirit, 
see many, many people come to confess and follow Jesus. Amen. Three points in your outlines. The church then, the church now, and then what it means for us. The first point, the church then. Uh, The church in Antioch, you've got to say, began in a way that no one would have wanted and certainly no one would have planned because verse 19 tells us that it was those who scattered after Stephen's death that it started. All right, it's a few chapters earlier, if you don't know the story, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is the first Christian martyr. A martyr is someone who gets killed for their faith. All right, and he gets killed in Jerusalem, stoned to death. And I don't mean drugs, I mean big stones. Um, he gets stoned to death by the Jewish council members, the leaders, and then the first ever wave of persecutions break out in Jerusalem. And many more believers are hunted down and arrested. And the person who oversaw all of that kind of stuff was a guy called Saul, a young rabbi who we'll find out later on becomes the Apostle Paul. But the result is the Jerusalem Christians, we had all been very happy to gather and meet and this was the first church and probably the only church at that time. Well, they were forced now to scatter. So verse 19, let's read again. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Just give you a bit of a map of the uh, Mediterranean. So Jerusalem is here. Phoenicia is kind of this west coast of Syria. Right? You've got Antioch there, Cyprus, Cyrene in North Africa. All right. Oh, sorry. We'll come to Cyrene later on. So they spread all throughout the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. They go up the coast of Syria. They even go on to the island of Cyprus. Now we read also in verse 19 that because these uh, believers who'd been scattered were Jewish, they only began speaking and preaching the gospel to other Jews. It's great, isn't it, though, that they were scattered and then they start talking. They couldn't help start talking. Um, but at first, it's just to Jews only. Then verse 20, because something interesting happens then. Look at verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, so now you see where Cyrene is, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them, the good news about the Lord Jesus. All right? They begin talking to Greeks, that is, non-Jews. Now, this is the first time that evangelism, right, in, in any sort of big way, is done to real Gentiles. We're talking about real Gentiles, okay, and real non-Jews, because Cornelius actually was, we read in Acts 10, a God-fearer. So the first Gentile convert was someone who already worshipped Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible. But these were Greeks. And the reason why I think it uses the word Greek instead of just the word Gentile is because it wants to point out that culturally they were like the Greeks all around them. This was the Roman Empire, but culturally everyone was Greek. Okay? Right? Like Australia were culturally Western. These were people who religiously, ethnically were as un-Jewish as you could be. They didn't. They weren't like Cornelius. They weren't following the God of the Bible. They weren't converts to Judaism. And so the Gentile mission begins right here in Antioch. And soon there's going to be a church there. Okay, so this is how it started. Now before we look at the church itself, I think it's, um, it's worth just kind of noticing a few things. The first thing I want you to notice is this. God is working good even in the midst of evil. You see that, don't you? God works good even in the midst of evil because this all happens as a result of something quite terrible. 
Right? The death of the first believer, persecution of the first church in Jerusalem. But you see God's hand in it, don't you? In fact, you could go as far to say that if the scattering had never happened, if the persecution had never happened in Jerusalem, the gospel probably would never have reached the rest of the world because, hey, we're a lot like them. We'd rather be comfortable sharing the gospel amongst our own people, yeah? So God's scattering actually becomes a means for which, through which the gospel spread. Now, this is interesting because if you know the Bible, in the Old Testament, scattering is almost always in judgment. Tower of Babel, they scatter. The exile, they scatter. But here, scattering becomes a means of blessing. So all this reminds us, again, that God is sovereign. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean He is absolutely in control. And He is good. And His plans always triumph over evil. Now, if you know anything about the history of Christianity in China, you'll know this is exactly what happened during the darkest years of the Cultural Revolution. And as terrible as persecution is today, the top country for a number of years is North Korea. Then in places like Syria, where ISIL is happening. In Africa, as terrible as persecution is there, we have confidence, don't we? We have assurance, don't we? That the same thing is still true. God is sovereign, He is good, and even in the midst of evil, He will work out His good and sovereign plans. Now, I just want to quickly say this. If this is the case with God working in history in a global scale, then how much more so is he doing that even with the terrible stuff you might be going through in your personal life? Yeah? God works even in your suffering, even in your struggle, even in the midst of evil. He can and will bring out good. Second thing I want you to notice. These Gentile evangelists were bicultural Jews. They're bicultural Jews. Verse 20 tells us there were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who began speaking to the Greeks. In other words, they were Jews, but they're not really Jewish Jews because they came from cosmopolitan Gentile cities in the Mediterranean, right? Cyprus, Cyrene in North Africa. And like Stephen and Philip earlier on in Acts, they were what's called Hellenistic Jews, right? Hellenistic Greek Jews. They were Jews by race and Jews by religion, but they were culturally Greek, a bit like Australian-born Chinese. They were the ABCs of their world. They were bicultural. But because they were bicultural, you notice, they were best suited to cross cultures because there was only half a step for them to start preaching the gospel to Greeks. Now, why do I say that? Well, I still believe very strongly, and my missionary friends in Thailand convinced me that this is the case, that bicultural, migrant kids, there's a lot of you here, second generation especially, are uniquely suited to cross cultures. I mean crossing cultures to, to Aussies around us, right? But also crossing other cultures. Think about Kings Grove, you've got Greeks, you've got Lebanese. You've got islanders, all the nations around here. We are more suited than perhaps our Australian friends, born and bred here, white Anglos, to cross these cultures. And bicultural people, guess what? Make the best missionaries. Don't take that from me. Take it from my missionary friends. Okay? They've told us that on a number of occasions. Whenever they have short-term missions coming, this is in Thailand, they notice the bicultural people, the bicultural churches are just that much better at blending in 
contextualizing and all that kind of stuff. And we have so many of those at this church in Southwest ECC. What a blessing. Number three, notice this thing. Antioch, as I said, is a city a lot like Sydney. Um, Antioch, I didn't know this before I did my research, it's the third largest city back then in the Roman Empire, the whole Roman Empire, which basically was a whole known Western world. After Rome, after Alexandria, it was Antioch. Half a million people lived in Antioch at that time and that was huge by ancient standards. That's the third largest city. Think about it. Third largest city in the USA is Chicago. Third largest city in Asia is Seoul. And a lot of you have been to Korea because you love K-pop and drama. And Seoul is very influential, is it not? If not for Seoul, you wouldn't be crying so much watching those silly dramas. But, this is Antioch, third largest city. And like Sydney, it was very multicultural. They have archaeological as well as ancient historical um, uh, findings of how multicultural this was. There were many nations living in the one city. Uh, the way that Rome kept the peace is they, they got them into d- different sections. So they have different sections of Antioch. This is the, you know, the Jewish quarter, the um, North African quarter, and they just kind of siphoned them off. A little bit like Sydney, certain areas of Sydney. You go to Sydney and, you know, like Hurstville, and it's like, like China, only the same. Um, you know, and that's Antioch. But you see, due to the size and makeup and location, this was a very strategic city, and I think Sydney is too. All right, back to Acts. So, on point 1B on your outlines. After the word spreads to the first Gentiles, a church is born. Now, how and why was it so successful? Why did it grow? Let's go to verse 21. Have a look there. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. I want to point out two reasons why the church grew. Number one, It was the grace of God. You see, verse 23, Barnabas sees that what's done there was done by God's grace. This church was not founded on the Jewish law. Remember, this was not a group of people who had to convert to Judaism first, then become Christians. Because if you were a convert to Judaism, you had to get circumcised, you had to come under the Torah, the Moses' law. No, 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 this church was founded on grace. Grace means free gift. It's because of God's free and generous offer that he would save people through Jesus, not because of what they've done, not because of law and how many rules they keep, but because Jesus already finished all the work and it's available for anyone, for free. See, God's grace is the reason why this church grew and God's grace is the only gospel for God's people here today. Anything else is not gospel. It's not good news. Anything else just lays upon you another burden that you have to be good enough for God. No, grace says, no, God has done everything for you in Jesus and it's only the gospel of grace that will continue to grow any church. Of course, our church included. The second thing to notice about why it grew is the continuing work of the Lord Jesus. See, again and again, this passage, did you notice, keeps referring to the Lord The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was on them. Verse 21, the people turned to the Lord. 23, they were exhorted to remain true to the Lord. Verse 24, the people were brought to the Lord. 
Now, the Lord here is not the Lord in capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament. Yahweh is the Lord. This is specifically referring to the Lord Jesus. That is, the resurrected, living Lord Jesus. You see, the book of Acts is not Jesus has left the building and they just got offended. No, the book of Acts is the continuing work of the risen Lord Jesus as he powerfully works through the church by his Holy Spirit. But it's very much the present Lord Jesus still working in the book of Acts. Acts is part two of what the Lord Jesus is doing. And you don't need to know that Jesus is very much alive today. Christians don't worship a dead saviour. We worship a living Lord, a living God, a living person today. Which shows you that the spread of Christianity is really unlike the spread of any other religion or ideology, isn't it? Because we don't spread Christianity by telling people, well, I've got a better philosophy for you to live by. Or here's a set of theology, read up and you'll get it. Or here's a good way of living. No, 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 no. What is conversion? When people become Christians and get converted, they are actually encountering a living person. That's what it means to become a Christian. You encounter a living person, the Lord Jesus. A person turns to the Lord. A person follows the Lord. A person remains true to the Lord. A person is brought to the Lord. And we must never forget that, church. We're not laying forth before the world a better theology or philosophy or way of living. No, we are setting forth a person. We're saying in our mission, in our evangelism, hey, do you know Jesus personally? Because if you don't, guess what? I know him and I'd love to introduce you to him. Have you ever thought about evangelism that way? Actually, it simplifies things, doesn't it? You don't have to know everything to introduce a person. I might be new friends with Grace, for example. I don't have to know everything about Grace. But through me, you can get to know grace too because I just introduced you to grace. You see how much easier that is? Evangelism is you saying to someone, I know Jesus. I don't know everything about him, but he's good. And I can introduce you to him. So come and know him. Easy. Much easier than introducing a philosophy or a religion. All right? But because Jesus is continually at work, this church grows. That's why the church is his body. Because he's still active. All right. Before I go to point two and think about our church, the last point I want to make from Antioch is what is its DNA? What is its makeup? How did this church work, function? Well, firstly, I want to back, go back to the key verse. Remember, verse 26, it was at Antioch that these disciples were first called Christians. Now, before they got given the name Christians, what were they? Disciples. That's important because even before they had a name, they had an identity. And this identity is far more important than the name. Their identity, in fact, is one that they've had since the Lord Jesus first walked on the earth in his public ministry. He called, as his first public ministry act, he called disciples. It's so important, so obvious, but it's so important. Right? They were disciples of a living Lord. They followed him. They obeyed him. They learned from him. This is really key. Antioch didn't grow as a church with a bunch of interested but uncommitted people. Even in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it's very clear that there's always a distinction between the crowd and the followers or the crowd and the disciples. And here's the sad thing though. 
so much of church growth today is just about counting the uncommitted crowd. How big is your church? 250. Great. Must be a great church. Well, not if 200 are just crowd. Do you see what I mean? The church's job is not creating crowds. It's moving people into discipleship. Genuine, committed, sacrificial disciples of Jesus. Antioch had that. That's the first thing. Antioch's DNA was about growing disciples. And that's the Great Commission, isn't it? Disciples making disciples. Right? Second thing, though, you need to know this discipleship is dynamic. There is a movement in discipleship. It's not static. Of course, it's not surprising because being a disciple is about following a person. And if you're following a person, it can't be static because people move. Jesus is moving. Following Jesus is a dynamic, personal thing. Now, I want to point out four steps in the dynamic discipleship that's part of Antioch's DNA. Four things in this discipleship. First thing, people become disciples as the Word of God is preached to them, as the Gospel is preached to them, as people are evangelized, disciples are made. Right? Disciples make disciples by preaching the Gospel to them. That's the first step in this dynamic movement and growth. But the second thing is this. These new disciples then are established in the faith. That is, they are growing and need to be grown in maturity. You don't just stay baby disciples. No, you grow as a disciple. And that's why Barnabas gets sent to them in these verses by the Jerusalem church. And then Barnabas in verse 25 and 26 goes to recruit the new convert Saul, who used to be a persecutor, but is now the Apostle Paul, or will be soon. And they spend, in verse 26, a year teaching, growing, training, so that this group of disciples can mature. But then the third thing in this movement is disciples are mobilized, aren't they? They're mobilized to do good works. The last bit of the chapter, verses 27 to 30, we read about a famine that's about to come. And it was a terrible famine and Another pointer that Acts is not fairy tale, it's actually in history. This did happen in the reign of Claudius. Not just the Bible tells us this, but history tells us this. But you see, this new church, these new disciples, they don't wait around. They take the initiative to help. This healthy church has outward looking, mobilized disciples. That's the third thing in the dynamic work of discipleship. And the last thing is that the greatest legacy of this church, Antioch, is that it is the home base for missionary work. This, this gets me excited. This one, I love. Just two chapters later, they send Barnabas and Saul on the first missionary journey to plant new churches amongst Gentiles. There would be no worldwide mission without Antioch. There would be no Christians in Australia. There'd be no Southwest CCC, no Acts 11 without Antioch. You got that? These disciples grew because they understood that disciples must be multiplied by churches being evangelized and planted into existence all around the world. So, you see it there. What's the DNA of this church? Why did it grow? Well, it was a dynamic church of disciples and they grew in terms of being made disciples, maturing disciples, mobilizing disciples and multiplying disciples. Great, isn't it? They all start with M. Lovely. 
came up with that. And so with that in mind, let's talk about our church, Southwest CCC, as well as Acts 11 as a congregation. Antioch is, I think, the model church in the book of Acts for us, in Sydney especially. Multicultural, metropolitan Sydney. I don't think we look to the church in Jerusalem as much as we should look to the church in Antioch because of our makeup and and the kind of city we're in. So I'm going to introduce to you now the mission and vision statement of our church. And it's, by the way, nothing really new. The ideas have always been there for the last seven years since we existed. But I want to kind of, we, we in the staff team and the elders, we want to re-articulate it in a, in a helpful way, in a memorable way from this year onwards and beyond. So let me tell you what the mission statement is. Sorry, the vision statement is on your outlines. Do I have that there? No, I don't. No, okay, that's right. It's on your outlines. Our vision at Southwest CCC is what? This is what we're aiming for. This is what we want to see. is to see worshipping communities overflowing with the gospel so that all nations in Sydney Southwest would experience Christ's transforming love and lordship. Quite a dense sentence, but you'll see elements there that if you've been around, you'll know this is what we're on about. Right, it's about worshipping communities. We already have three congregations, or what I like to call worshipping communities. But we want to see worshipping communities so overflowing. It's a natural thing. We understand the gospel. We love Jesus. That overflows. And it needs to overflow to all the nations around us, especially in Sydney Southwest, because there are all nations around us. And we want them to experience and meet Jesus, have his love and lordship transform them. So to see this happening, we need to... Keep worshipping so that it overflows and we need to multiply the number of worshipping communities, i.e. planting new churches and new congregations. We'll come to that later. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on the vision statement because if you know anything about vision statements, you'll know that vision statements in corporate culture language, um, they set out where you would like to go, yeah, the kind of big picture where you would like to go, but often it's the mission statement that's more important because the mission statement tells you how you're going to get there. So I really want us to focus, and Pastor John will do this, particularly with the congregation time, about what the mission statement is. And here there are no surprises, because I've already said it. Our mission at Southwest CCC, those four M's, is to make, mature, mobilize, and multiply disciples of Jesus. Right, it's all there in Acts 11. It's all there, there in Antioch's DNA. Okay, we want to be about disciples making followers of Jesus, growing followers of Jesus. But this is a dynamic journey, it's a movement. It starts with making to maturing. Then we want to mobilize them. Then we want to multiply. And by multiply, we particularly here mean we want to plant and send more people, more churches and more people, all right, to do that kind of work. So let me go through them quickly, one by one. Making disciples, how does that happen? Well, it's through evangelism, right? That's got to be the start. And it's got to come all throughout what we want. We want to see more people come to know Jesus and join, not just by transfer growth. It's great when you come from other churches or you're looking for a new church, but we want especially people who never, never go into church, who don't know Jesus, to come to know him. Of course, that's not going to happen unless every individual Christian disciple here is involved in sharing, introducing, inviting We want to make disciples. Secondly, though, we want to mature disciples. We don't want baby Christians, right? We want people who are taught and learn God's word in community, through worship. We want 
Christians who aren't just superficial Christians. No, 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 not crowd. We want disciples, mature, robust, stable, committed, active disciples. And then we want to mobilize you if you're a disciple. And we want to train you. We want to empower you to do lots of, all kinds of ministries, official. By the way, the word ministry just means serving, okay? Nothing special about it. We want, we want you to serve inside the church, outside the church, official, unofficial, whether people see it or not, doesn't really matter. Because the church only grows when each member of the church are like members of one body. Right? Every part does its work. We serve each other, we serve the world. So we want to be a church that does that. We want to mobilize people, encourage, train, empower, so you can serve in an infinite number of ways, both inside and outside the church. And last of all, we want to multiply disciples. And as I said before, this is different to just the making disciples part. It's not just about evangelism. This is about planting more congregations. We have another one in the works already. You might hear more about it later on this year. We want to send more full-time gospel workers, overseas missionaries. So good to see Kerry and Heidi back from their short-term trip. We want more missionaries. Because there's a world that doesn't know Jesus. We want to send more full-time pastors, church planters. Right? So if that's you, you're in a great church. Alright, so we, these four things, make, mature, mobilize, multiply. Pastor John will spell that out particularly for Acts 11 in a moment. But we want you to get involved. We want this to be your mission if you are part of this church. And there's so much more to be done, isn't there? Let me finish by quickly applying it just to the groups of people here today. And then Pastor John later on will come and talk about how it's going to work on a whole. So point number three. On any given Sunday, there's going to be three groups of people. Yeah? Your contact, your crowd, or your core. I love things starting with the same letter. Have you noticed? Um, I changed my name to Peter Poe. Or Peter Coe. Anyway. Um, contact. A contact is someone who's fairly new at church. That is, you're visiting, you've come along by word of mouth, by invitation, you've not yet decided that this is the church you're going to keep coming to. Um, there's two groups of people within the contacts. That is, you may be Christian um, and you might belong to another church. We get a lot of people who's like, oh, I have a Sunday off or I'm in town, I just want to visit. That's great. Or maybe, actually, you are looking for a new church and you're a Christian but you're looking for a new church. You're considering this church and that's why you're here. Or you might be not yet a Christian. No, you're here because someone's invited you who's a Christian. You're like, oh, I'd like to find out more, I suppose. Wouldn't mind coming every so often. So you're a contact, but you're not yet a Christian. Now, regardless of what group you fall into, if you're a contact, my thing I want to say to you is just welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad to have you here, especially if this is your first time. I kind of want to say today is not the usual type of sermon. We do this kind of once a year, the vision stuff. But you're lucky because if you are looking for a new church or if you are not yet a Christian and you're wanting to find out more about Jesus, then hopefully from what you've heard from me at least, you can be assured that is actually part of what we want to do as a church, right? This is part of who we are. We want to help you understand who Jesus is. We want to help you grow as a Christian. If that's what you're looking for, great. Can I ask you please to fill in the I'm New contact cards at the back of the bulletin because that way we can get in touch with you. Next, crowd. Uh, I, I crowds are people who are semi-regular. Are there? Not every week, but you know, semi-regular. But you haven't really committed yourself to weekly attendance on, uh, on Sundays and really definitely not to midweek groups, um, community groups and you haven't thought about becoming a 
a church member or what we call a church partner yet. Now, the crowd, I want to say here, you, again, might be two groups. Firstly, you might not yet be Christian, right? We get a lot of people who come fairly regularly, even weekly sometimes, and then you're not yet a Christian, right? And I want to kind of just say to you, if you're not yet a Christian, great, keep coming along. This is, you're doing the right thing already, exposing yourself to Christians and God's Word. Can I just add one more thing that you might want to think about this year? If you're in the crowd group but not yet a Christian, would you have a think about doing um, an investigating or you know, introducing God type course? And we're going to run that and Jono will tell you about that later on. Because in the big setting, I gotta, you know, we got to preach to everyone. But in a smaller setting, you can ask your questions, open the Bible, even one-on-one. Some of our deacons and leaders would love to meet up with you. Worth going the extra distance to get to know in a short period of time, get to know at least some of the basics. So you, you make a more informed decision, that's all, if you're not yet a Christian. But if you are a Christian, can I urge you, as is appropriate in your life circumstances, and I know it's going to look different for everyone, especially if your health is an issue or you just got young kids, or you, you know, but as appropriate in life circumstances, can I urge the Christians here who are part of the crowd, don't stay a crowd, Okay? Live out your discipleship. Get involved. Commit. I know it's a horrible word in Gen Y and Gen Z, but actually commit. Right? Make it a non-negotiable. I'm there at church, Sunday mornings, 11 o'clock, come hell or high water unless I'm really sick. Right? I'm just going to commit to being there. Kids parties? Sorry. Tutoring? Sorry. Right? This is just what we do on Sunday mornings. 11 o'clock, we're at church. Can you commit to that? Would you be willing to commit to a community group? Yes, it's another night a week. Yes, you're tired and yes, you've got to go to work the next day, but so does everyone else who is committed. Would you commit to giving your time, your talents, your money to serve this body? And would you, if you haven't yet, consider becoming a church, official church partner, a church member, This is a vital step for our church and how we're made up, but also for your personal growth and maturity. Pastor Jono will tell you about how you can do that a bit afterwards. Last of all, core. That is, you are Christians, you're committed, you're probably already a church partner and you're definitely serving. You're going to community groups, you're here on Sundays. Look, I want to keep it simple for you guys. I only have one thing to say to you and it's what Barnabas did in verse 23. What did he tell them? He tells them to remain true to the Lord to continue to serve the Lord with all their hearts. And that's all I want to say to you. If you're a core, keep going. Right, keep growing. Keep following. Remain true to the Lord. And, and remember what we said last year in that series? You remember the, you probably don't. The, the sermon series, The Ordinary Christian. You know, it's not, it doesn't happen by one-off spectacular things. It's by being an ordinary Christian. It's day in, day out, week in, week out, committed, faithful, often unnoticed. Well, let me put it in terms of our mission statement. Be faithful in the first stand. Be faithful as a disciple maker. That's not all of you going out and doing masses of evangelism. It's just, look, who has God put you around? Who do you work with? Who do you live around? Who are the social people you get? Who are your old high school uni friends? As God gives you opportunity, share the gospel, share your testimony, invite them to church. Just be faithful in doing that. Be faithful in maturing yourself as a disciple. Right? Commit to learning, growing. Continue to go to community groups, even if it's hard. 
even if your group hasn't quite clicked yet. Keep going. Be faithful in mobilizing to serve others. Whatever part you play, official or unofficial in this body, do it with all your heart. Do it with joy. Do it faithfully. And last of all, be faithful in our church's multiplication strategy. This one's a little bit harder. For the average um, core member, uh, you're not going to be directly involved in that. But let, let me tell you that our church is on about planting more churches and sending more gospel workers. And so primarily your involvement will be, please pray. Pray for the people we might send. Pray for the leaders as we plan. Support us. Ask about it. And here's another one, the big one. Your financial commitment. Without a certain level of giving that we budget for, we can't grow and expand, add more workers, send more missionaries. So this time of the year, if you haven't already, consider or reconsider your giving for 2016. But it's pretty simple. What I'm saying is this. For the core members, partners of this church, just be faithful in the little things. Yeah, that's, that's all. Just keep doing it. But I want to say quickly though, ordinary discipleship does not equal easy discipleship. I don't get like, being an ordinary Christian faithful in little things doesn't mean it's not going to cost you. Quite the opposite. Sometimes being faithful in the little things rather than the big one or spectacular things costs you the most because it's sustained cost. So I want you to count the cost because you're a disciple, not a crowd, are you? You count the cost because Jesus said, if you want to be a disciple, you want to come after me, you take up your cross daily, you deny yourself, you follow me. Right? Everyday faithfulness sounds simple, but it is costly. It's everyday counting the cost. Let me just give you one example of the many I could give. If you are committed to our church's core value of community, our church has four core values. I didn't want to add that to the mix. It's confusing. I've got mission, vision, blah, blah, blah. Four core values, worship, word, community, mission. If you're committed to the community core value Hey, it will cost you, won't it? Tim Keller, famous pastor, says, Everyone says they want community and friendship, but mention accountability or commitment to people and they run the other way. It's true, isn't it? If you've never had to sacrifice your convenience and your personal preferences for the sake of others, then you've probably never experienced real community or the real cost of community. If you are committed to the community of this church, then you will have to sacrifice your personal preferences over what's good for the vision and mission of the church. I mean, is it easy committing to weekly Sunday attendance when there's hobbies and parties and kids and work? And No, it's not. You've got to sacrifice. But for the sake of community, you make sure you're there. And you know what? I'll tell you what. It's not easy to support the leadership sometimes. As one of the leadership, let me just say that. I know it's sometimes hard. Sometimes you would personally love to see things done differently. Sometimes you may not even, just don't have enough information. You don't understand why things are done a certain way. And the larger the church goes, sometimes the less information trickles down. I get that. That's hard. Now, we want your feedback. We want you to ask questions. But can I just say also, again, as we grow larger, that gets slightly harder. And sometimes for the sake of unity and the greater good, you need to sacrifice your own preferences and just trust and follow someone else's lead. That can be hard. Right? Sacrifice to give a percentage of your income as regular offertory, so that you're committed to the community. Whether you earn a lot or not much at all, it's still costly. 
But as I said, without generous, committed, weekly giving, regular giving, we can't set a budget that will grow the work of the gospel through this church. So, let me conclude though. Back to what I said right at the beginning, it took, great, it took more than a decade, right, for this Gentile mission to happen in the book of Acts. It took over a decade. That surprised me when I first did my research. But once it did though, there was no stopping it. And here, get this, get this in your mind. There is a direct line between Antioch in about 40 AD to our church, Southwest CCC, in 2016. Because of Antioch, we are a church today. We owe it all to that church nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if one day, just imagine with me, if you're a Christian, one day in the new creation, let's just say a 1,000 years from now, a 1,000 years from now, in the new creation, wouldn't it be great if someone said this of our church, Southwest CCC, the same kind of things we're saying about Antioch, wouldn't it be great if there before the throne of Jesus, a group of people, perhaps many groups of people say, you know what? You don't know this, but we wouldn't have become followers of Jesus. We wouldn't have heard the gospel. We wouldn't have become our own church if it wasn't for you. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see, hearts that are soft, and the power, the ability, through your Spirit, to be all that Jesus wants us to be, not just for 2016, but for the years ahead in Jesus' name.